0: The um, Dwanya Loka by Ananda Vardhana. It was written well, perhaps 700 years, 800 years ago. And uh, <coughs> excuse me. in this book, Ananda Vardhana lays out formal sort of literary theory, which was extremely influential in Indian history among, among poets and writers and so on. And what's interesting about his book is that he gives, as the best example of a perfect literature, the Mahabharata. And uh, he claims in his analysis of the Mahabharata that the prevailing... (laughs) Oh, I have one here. But my feet also drink. Actually in Sanskrit, uh, one of the words for tree is padapa, foot drinker. (laughs) That's a common word for tree. Since I'm not a tree, I probably... I'll try that. Anyway, Ananda Vardana in analyzing the Mahabharata, talks about its rasa. And the word rasa literally means flavor, taste in Sanskrit, and it was used to mean... The predominant emotion of a work such as conjugal love or friendship or parental love or uh, the love of a, of, a, of a servant or child or the master or parent and so Anandavarana says that in Mahabharata the ultimate emotion interestingly enough especially we're about to describe an extremely violent uh, set of events is shanti shanti or peace And so uh, I will give some, try to give some explanation of of how we can think of of the Mahabharata as a literature which ultimately teaches peace. Although, of course, there's so much politics and violence and all that stuff. Um, I said at the very beginning that um, the Mahabharata teaches us at three different levels. Uh, First, it's a story of a great dynastic struggles, part of the history of the world. And uh, about human kings and princes and intrigue and so on. And secondly, it's a cosmic story because the great personalities in the Mahabharata, most of them actually came from other worlds, higher worlds. And ultimately, it's a spiritual narrative because within the Mahabharata is Bhagavad Gita, the great spiritual text of the Vedic culture. So, we've talked a lot about the politics and all that stuff and the fighting, and we've uh, talked about the cosmic stuff, and we've mentioned sometimes the spiritual part, but to ultimately understand the Mahabharata and why, in 18 days, millions of warriors lost their lives, um, we have to keep in mind that the ultimate purpose of the Bhagavad Gita, the ultimate purpose of life, is not that to enjoy this world, although certainly the Vedas teach that there is a way to be happy in this world and to live properly and so on. But ultimately to attain or to, you say, uh, rediscover our eternal nature. If you think of the word discover, which literally means to uncover, and that's uh, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita talks about the soul being covered or or consciousness being covered. Uh, My teacher Prabhupada used to give the example that when a diamond falls into the mud, you pick it up and and apparently you have a bunch of mud in your hand. But if you just wash off the diamond, it's still there. Compare this, for example, to pulverizing a diamond and flinging the powder into the ocean, and, you know, there's nothing to wipe off. It's gone. So, when Krishna compares matter and spirit, he talks about matter as something which is endlessly transformed and mutable. One thing changes into another. Whereas in the case of the soul or consciousness, spiritual consciousness, it never, it never really loses. You never really lose yourself. You're always eternally intact, but consciousness becomes covered. And so, to discover oneself is literally to remove that covering and, and to see who we really are. So, interesting. The Mahabharata does not want to encourage you to remain in this world. If you consider that the text has two purposes, which are paradoxical but not contradictory paradox is an apparent contradiction, which can, be re- which can be resolved. But still there's this tension, and uh, the great Greek philosopher, or, well, I don't know how great he was, pretty good, Herodotus, pre-Socratic <laughs> philosopher, is famous for saying that uh, if you consider a bow which has been strung, like a bow and arrows, it appears to be at rest, <laughs> but actually the power of the bow comes from the tension between the two ends of the bow. For the same way there are tensions which are creative and powerful and which propel us forward. So the Mahabharata and all these great literatures have really two purposes. First of all, to attract us. Because if we're not interested, you know, no one's going to take the medicine. No one's going to derive any benefit from a book that they, they never read and never hear about. And so, first of all, there, there is a conscious attempt to draw you in. In fact, not only a conscious attempt in writing a book, but actually a conscious attempt in bringing certain activities to this world. As I've mentioned, the the texts Bhagavatam, Mahabharata mention over and over again that Krishna is theatrical, that God is theatrical. He's like an actor. And He he puts on a good show so that He can somehow draw us into these activities and engage us spiritually. So in the act of You know, watching a good story or hearing a good story, we are actually practicing yoga and self-realization simply by hearing stories. And that was really the very conscious purpose and and the texts say this about themselves over and over again. So on the one hand, the purpose is to draw us in so that instead of busying ourselves with, we say, mundane topics that don't really give us any spiritual benefit, we can satisfy our natural desire to hear good stories or, or watch movies. And at the same time progress in our self-realization. So, that's one purpose. But on the other hand, there is the purpose to bring us up and out of material consciousness and ultimately to restore us in our eternal home uh, beyond this world. So, and actually the Gita uses the word okus home. And from the sense word okus, of course, we have the Greek word ekos or the word ecology. Anyway, So, here's a book which wants to interest you in what's going on in this world, but at the same time lift you out of this world. And so if we look at the Mahabharata, now the Pangas are on the battlefield, Krishna, Arjuna, loses his desire to fight, and a dialogue ensues in which Krishna first just tells Arjuna, what in the world are you doing? Because Krishna, you know, he just says, this is crazy, Arjuna, what are you doing? And then when he sees that Arjuna is actually serious, then he says, okay, you need a little wisdom here. Then he teaches him Bhagavad Gita. After the Bhagavad Gita is over, or has been spoken, then the battle ensues. And we'll talk a little bit about that battle. But, so a few things. Um, the purpose is to show you that even if you are an associate of Krishna, even if you have the supreme good fortune to actually travel to some universe, because it's, it's described sort of as, as a traveling roadshow, that you can, you can actually go to different universes and appear with great souls like Krishna, Shiva, and so on, because they display these activities uh, throughout the many universes. And so, a purified soul has this option to actually accompany. You can become one of the Pandavas. You can become, you can become a participant in this story. So, at the same time, the text wants to teach us that even if you get to participate in the story. Uh, Ultimately, this temporary world of samsara, as the Buddhists always point out, the world of suffering and birth and death and so on, um, is not our permanent home. And so this text wants to attract you and show you great things, but not in a way that sort of reinforces your desire to stay here. So, as far as the great personalities that took part in in this battle, or took part in this entire story, Uh, the greatest of them were actually conscious of what they were doing. For example, let's say you could be in America or any other country, there's some type of danger or terrorist attack or whatever, something really bad is happening, the government will send all kinds of special forces, perhaps to some little town, you know, some sleepy little town, maybe it's got a post office and a, I don't know, a yoga center, (laughs) you know some sleepy little town and suddenly it's filled with thousands of soldiers and special forces and all kinds of things helicopters and you know tanks whatever this sleepy little town now as soon and and a battle may take place if you look at the great battles of the world they often took place in little little towns that were insignificant no one ever heard of them but that's where great battles took place in millions of uh, soldiers gathered. And so something, well, actually very much like that, this kind of sleepy backwater planet, you know, the Earth, uh, became the focus of this cosmic battle. And as the Asuras were coming here, and so many devas, so many godly beings came here, and you could call it, it was sort of like a cosmic SWAT team. And um, so all these special forces came to the world. But once once the battle was over and the danger was overcome, they couldn't stay there. I mean, what if, for example, in some little town where people live there and raise their families and thousands of special forces come then when the danger's over, they go, well, maybe we'll just keep like 2,000 troops here on your main street, you know, some little town. No. It's like we want to go back to our normal life. We, we you know, You've done your job, now go back to wherever you go when you finish finished your job. So, in that way, the earth... In Krishna, this is actually a theme which you find in these great stories. And, and you find it Krishna himself saying that I came to this world to relieve the burden of the earth, but now my own devotees, my own associates, because they're so powerful, they're superhuman, if they remain here, they themselves will become the burden of so that's that's a theme which comes up again and again. And therefore, in this battle, uh, great souls like, let's say, Abhimanyu, or, I mean, so many soldiers on both sides, uh, especially on the pontiff's side, they understood that once our mission is done, we have to leave. In other words, die. It's not really death for someone who has their eyes open. It's simply, just like, for example, now we're in this pavilion, this hall, and when we leave here, we don't die, we just... Go down the sidewalk to another room. And so, in the same way, for one who has their eyes open spiritually, uh, leaving the body, I, I don't want to encourage suicide by the way, but when, when our natural demise comes, uh, it's just like changing rooms. Or to give the example that Krishna gives in the Gita, changing dress. By like giving up worn out clothes and taking new clothes. So, many of the great souls who came understood that they would have to... that they had received special bodies for a special mission. And once that mission was over, they had to give back those bodies and go back where they came from. And so, that's how the Mahabharata deals with these twin objectives, which are somewhat in, in tension with each other, the state of tension. That is to draw you in, to attract you to get you into the story and yet in doing so not encourage you just to stay here forever in this world but to go back to your real home which is spiritual and eternal. So also on to the battle. That's a little bit of the background of what's going on here and um, so uh, the battle started the battle lasted 18 days according to the text and uh, on the Pandava side, the general was Drisadyumna. Isn't it, Chankar? Pandava's general was Uh he, he was. No, or someone had to manage the force, so so was given that job. And on the Kuru side, uh, the first general was Bhishma, their greatest warrior, the, the son of Ganga. So there are many battle stories and uh, Bhishma fought very valiantly and often the Pandavas would all fight against him. He was simply unstoppable. But finally, there's one interesting story with Bhishma which he himself talks about. In the Bhagavatam, in the first canto, chapter 9, there are really exquisite prayers offered by Bhishma just before he leaves this world, in which Krishna comes to him and he reveals himself to be really very devoted to Krishna. Shankar also, of course, wrote a very famous song to Krishna, isn't it? And, anyway, Bhishma says, and this shows kind of like his own moral development or or how his moral philosophy has changed a bit. Because remember, young Bhishma, it's like, I don't care about the consequences, I I don't lie, I tell the truth, I keep my promise, I couldn't care, you know, whatever happens, not my problem. He doesn't care about consequences. But, at the end of his life, Bhishma, and, and there's a part of the Mahabharata Krishna personally teaches him that consequences matter. There's, a, there's an interesting dialogue. Krishna had promised that he would not personally fight in the battle. He would simply be Arjun's charioteer. Bhishma was determined to make Krishna break his promise. I mean, clearly this is a new uh, version of Bhishma. In the sense that now... In other words, he wants, because he wants to reveal Krishna's love for his devotee. And therefore he wants to show that by attacking Arjuna, by really threatening Arjuna, when it finally comes down to it, Krishna will give up anything to save those who love him. And actually Bhishma does show this because he mounts this ferocious attack against Arjuna and Arjuna's really in danger and there's a very famous scene where. Which is displayed in innumerable uh, artworks in India for you know, for a very long time. Now, this is a battlefield, and so there's all kinds of you know chariot parts because all kinds of chariots and weapons are being smashed. So, battlefields is just littered with this debris of, of fighting. And so, when Krishna saw that Bhisma was really really after Arjuna, he gra- he he jumped off the chariot that he was driving, and he grabbed a chariot wheel that was lying there and, and just sort of transformed it into a chakra you know, and, on his finger and he rushed to Bhishma and, and Bhishma in his prayers said this is what I wanted to see that because everyone has their own unique relationship with God and this is of course a very strong point in the teachings that there are different ways to love God some people want God as their conjugal lover you find this also in mystic Christianity in bridal mysticism Find it also in mystic forms of Judaism uh, about a thousand years ago in Spain. So so this is a one form of mystic devotion where where in Christianity it's called bridal mysticism, where one sees the Lord as one's, in a sense, lover, and one sees oneself as the bride of God. And and there's another relationship where you become God's parent in the sense that because if you think parents can't ever forget their children, although children do manage sometimes to forget their parents. And so, if you develop this type of parental love for God, then you can never forget Him for a moment. And so there's that vaksalya rasa, that parental love, and then there's friendship, like Arjuna with Krishna. Now, Bhishma, because he was such a warrior, he longed to have this vision of Krishna coming at him with deadly force. He, because he admired so much Krishna's chivalry, and, and he just he wanted he, he loved to see Krishna in that form, and Krishna would never do that because he was so respectful to Bhishma as a grandfather. So therefore, Bhishma provoked him and wanted to see Krishna that way and wanted to show that Krishna would do anything to protect those who love him. So then, after that, Arjun was saved, and finally, and I, I'm skipping some details which somehow are in the text I and mean, how they got there, but but the basic point is that um, finally Shikandi would had been Amba the past I remember Amba, this tragic story of Amba who was sent back and forth between these powerful men who would not believe her even when she was telling the truth and they destroyed her life and so finally Amba of course has taken birth again as Shikandi this great warrior who finally kills Bhishma and uh... Bhishma must have felt, must have known, he did know that I destroyed this person's life and there must have been, even in, 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 in the moment of, of being slain by Shikhandi, Bhishma must have known the justice of it. That I ruined this person's life, I destroyed this person's life and now there's justice. So, once Bhishma was gone, the next general was Drona Drona took over and this Brahmana who had a real taste for uh, violence and politics. So, Drona took over as the commander. He was also extremely difficult to to fight. And finally, again, skipping some details, uh, it was Dristudyumna who would kill him. And Dristudyumna did kill him actually. Drishti did kill him. Just one note to Shankar. If it had actually been the case, of just like he was defenseless my bet, then you know anyone could have done it. You didn't need Drishti <laughs> Anyway, that's just a little shop talk, <laughs> fellow scholar. So uh, once Drona was gone, once Drona was gone, then uh, wasn't it Sh- Shalya? Before Shalya? No, Karna was Shalya's chariot driver. And that's where he fulfilled his is it promise to Kunti, I think, by kind of messing up Shalya. Yeah, Karna said the moment uh, the moment uh, Ishmael is gone, he's stepping in. Right, he stepped in, but I think Shalya was senior. And, and Karna was the chariot driver Shalya, kind of Shalya. But he was back on the battlefield. I mean, it's like Achilles. These stories uh, reverberate throughout the world. For example, the Iliad by Homer, where uh, Achilles say, says he will not fight as long as Agamemnon's on the battlefield and the Greeks are losing. And so, similarly, Karna said he would not fight as long as Bhishma was fighting because he felt that Bhishma had offended him. Another character trait of Karna, he felt he could be offended by someone so senior to him. Anyway, so then Shalia took over. This was the uncle. Of the Pandavas, who somehow was on the other side for various reasons, and he didn't last very long. Finally, Karna took over as the general, what he'd always been waiting for. And um, at this point, Karna knew that the Pandavas were his brothers. I didn't mention this before. But when when Krishna was trying, again, people read the Bhagavad Gita and think Krishna is a hawk, you know, he just wants war. Actually, Krishna made many, many efforts. He tried everything possible, again, without interfering with the free will of other souls. Krishna tried everything possible to stop the war. And he even took Karna on his chariot and said, let's talk. And he told Karna, you were actually the son of Kunti. And Kunti yourself, you know, came and just desperate to avoid this war. So the Pandavas, Krishna, all of them, Kunti, were doing everything possible to avoid the war. And Karna, uh, he was moved. I mean, but but he just, he said, I, I, I will not go back to my word. That I am sworn to fight with Duryodhana." He not to kill any yes. other than a... Which is a little strange because his husband, yeah, yeah, 34. yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he promised. Yeah, yeah, he, he promised Kundi that he will still have five sons after, you know. Oh, However, it, it, it's sort of inexplicable why Karna, and, and no reason is ever given to the Mahabharata, actually, he had such hostility toward Arjuna. But in any case, finally, you know, the, like the supreme pay-per-view fight <laughs> takes place. Karna and uh, and Arjuna. Now, again, uh, some people have noticed that in the Mahabharata, which is a text which, according to great teachers like uh was influenced over time by different reciters and so on. But we have Karna, we have a Karna who's basically booby-trapped. I mean, he's completely like, got all his curses. He has so many curses that when he fights Arjuna, it turns out there's no real fight at all. It's all his curses kind of kick in and self-destruct. Uh, personally, I, I don't think that's what really happened. I think there was actually a fight and Arjuna won. And the uh, the evidence for this is that um, they had encounters before. They, they, they met each other, although Karni didn't know who Arjun was, at Drobri Svanbara and Arjun got the best of it. And also at the, at the, at the... Yeah, exactly. I was going to mention that. That when... Uh, when Kichika, when Bhima you know, beat Kichika to death and then Duryodhana thought now I can, you know, great, I can steal someone's kingdom. He went there and then Arjuna of course just came out of exile in his incognito year and he again defeated Karna. So, um, anyway, so Karna also died. And there are um, so at that point, uh, ultimately, when the battle was over, there were very few people left. The Pandavas were left. And then Ashwatthama, the son of Drona, uh, committed what was considered then a heinous act. Even Dreyodhana, who was still alive, although he was dying, considered it a heinous act. And that is, he killed the sleeping children of Drona, the five sons of Drona, and of course just Ajumna. And again, I think in order to understand all this, you have to understand the purpose of the Mahabharata is not is to draw you in, but not ultimately persuade you that your eternal home is inside of the material body and the material world, but that you have much much better options waiting for you. You have your eternal life in a place, in a situation beyond your wildest dreams. And so, therefore, this Shanti, which which Ananda talks about, that ultimately. Uh, these people, these special forces that came down to address a major threat to the universe, uh, once the mission was accomplished, they had to go back. And so there's another uh, before I end this, there's a um, there's a scene which I find very moving, which involves Dushala, the sister of Duryodhana, who was actually a good person. Um. After the war was over, uh, of course, Yudhisthira was inconsolable. Yudhisthira wa- was devastated because of all the destruction, uh, and uh, everyone tried to console him great sages, even Krishna. But ultimately, the only person who could console him was Bhishma. There's a famous scene that when Arjuna when finally kills Bhishma, he shoots him so full of arrows that when Bhishma falls over on his back, he's literally on a bed of arrows. And uh, it's a very famous story in, in India. And he's lying there and he's thirsty and it's Arjun who understands his need. And so when, once Bhishma is down, everyone comes forward because he's a grandfather, And Arjun shoots an arrow into the ground water springs up and he gives he gives Bijan a drink of natural spring water. And then Yunus uh, uh, here, because this is afterwards, uh, the Bhagavad Gita explained that, I think I mentioned this already, that um, yogis who leave this world during the Dakshinayana, when the sun is traveling toward the south, obviously in the northern hemisphere, they come back and yogis who leave this world when the sun is traveling to the north, they don't come back. And so the, the battle basically took place in November perhaps early December, and Bhishma, who had the blessing of Chanda could die at will whenever he wanted to die, he waited until the auspicious time when the sun had come out of the winter solstice and was heading back toward the north, and then he gave him his life. So therefore, after the battle was over, the Pandavas came to him to honor him and to receive wisdom from him before he left the world. And it was only Bhishma who could console Yudhisthira. It was actually Bhishma who finally convinced him you have to give up this grief and rule the world. And so um, so the pandavas did that. And so the situation, what was the post-war situation on Earth? First of all, uh, the world was in political chaos, that part of the world. Again, India was the center of that great landmass. There was simply political chaos. Pandavas were officially now the rulers but uh, so many kings had been killed uh, everyone's treasury had been exhausted there was practically not and they talk about this openly in the Mahabharata there was not enough there were not enough resources to govern That was the government was bankrupt and um, so I forget who was it but but someone revealed some sage revealed perhaps Vyasa that uh, there was once a king Ages ago, so for the Pandavas, this was very ancient history. Very, very ancient history. There had been a king who performed a sacrifice up in the Himalayan mountains. And in in that age, in a previous yuga, which was even a greater yuga than the one the Pandavas appeared in, there was so much opulence in the world that that sacrifice, everything was made of gold. All of the utensils that people ate with, everything was made of gold. And there was a huge store of gold up in the mountains that had been forgotten. And so the Pandavas recovered that gold and used it to re-establish basically a central treasury to re-establish government in the world after the uh, Bhagavad and then to again establish political uh, order in the world uh, Yudhisthira was going to perform the Ashwamedha sacrifice, similar to the Rajasuya which again would establish him as a legitimate ruler. And so he sent his brothers in all directions and uh, the process is very simple that uh, in every kingdom the local ruler whoever was left, either in many cases they were practically young boys ruling because their fathers were killed in the battle of Kurukshetra. So it was a very difficult time and Eudistir and gave special instructions to Arjuna, who, who, the son of a challenge horse who could roam freely to every kingdom and you had to either fight or accept the sovereignty of the Pandavas. It's interesting because Eudistir Yudhis, gave very explicit directions that people have had enough violence I don't want more violence that somehow or other persuade people to cooperate because this is Dharma the Pandva was ruling by Dharma and if someone doesn't cooperate use the minimum force necessary and do everything and just somehow or other don't kill anyone so Yudhishthira was very explicit on this point, you didn't want any more violence in the world, people need a break from all this. So, uh, Arjuna went following this horse and this very moving incident took place in the kingdom of Sindh, which is a province now, I guess the southern coast of Pakistan, a southern province. And uh, now the the king of Sindh had been Jayadrata. This is a person who attempted to abduct Jopadi when she was with her. I mean, she was already married and just wanted to sort of steal her and enjoy her. And Drogri whipped him um, with a chariot whip and, uh, and then the Pandavas caught up with him and, and beat him to within an inch of his life. And uh, then there's a famous scene where Jayapratta helped uh, the Kurus to kill Abhimanyu and Arjun about to kill him and did kill him. So, um, so when Arjun arrived in sin, this was the worst place because uh the descendants of Jayadratha, his sons and grandsons, that were now in charge, were extremely bitter, and they practically all preferred to die rather than submit to the Pandavas. So when Arjuna came there, uh, <coughs> you know, he told them that you have these two options, and they, you know, they, they made it very clear that you know that they hated the Pandavas; they were going to fight. And Arjun said, you know, so Arjun was fighting with them. Arjun was a vastly superior warrior. And so he was just kind of fending them off because, you know, he kept on look, Yudhishthira told me not to kill you. Can't you just cooperate? <laughs> and they would. not And then finally, because they, they kept fighting, Ar- Yudhishthira said everything really possible. But Arjun did that. They were still really attacking And finally Arjun said, okay, that's it. And so our June was really was going to get serious about it now. And th- th- some people were going to have a, a reincarnation experience. <laughs> but at that point, um, the widow of Jayadratha, who was actually a great lady, who had been humiliated by her husband when he tried to steal Droghati, and who was, who was actually a great lady, Dushala, the sister of Duryodhana and the wife of Jayadratha, This great lady simply walked out right into the middle of the battlefield. This was an active battlefield. She just walked right out into the battlefield. And as soon as she walked out, this queen mother, everyone just put down their weapons. I mean, obviously she just ordered her grandchildren and their children to stop fighting. And of course, they they obeyed her. And then she approached Arjun, who was ready to really start hurting people... And as soon as Arjun saw her, she was his uh, cousin, like his sister. He immediately put down all his weapons and offered her respect. And she simply declared that the fight was over. <laughs> and that the kingdom of sin would in fact cooperate with the Pandavas. So it's a very moving, it's a very powerful story of how this great lady just ended the ended battle. Anyway, so uh, so interestingly, according to the Vaishnava tradition, in this age, after Krishna, as he said, reestablished dharma, and in a sense, uh, I think I said in the beginning, uh, from the point of view of those for whom these things actually happen. Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita that dharma, whenever Dharma is declining so when I come that the world is not worse than it is had Krishna not come the world might be a very, very different place today <clears throat> a much worse place and so some things we take for granted like for example that there's still some humans that aren't cannibals or you, know, you can still walk down the street someplace without being in serious fear of your life that somehow or other Dharma was re-established and interestingly, according to the tradition, when Krishna came again about five hundred years ago as Chaitanya, there were no weapons. His weapons were just his associates who humbly tried to present his message to people. In fact, it's said that in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna asked everyone to just give up uh, illusory activities and, and simply take shelter of the Lord, but because people couldn't understand it or somehow couldn't follow it, he came again to set the personal example as a devotee of Krishna and uh, no violence. Of course, I'm referring to Chaitanya Goranga about whom we sang. And interestingly, in the entire life of Gauranga or Chaitanya, no one's ever killed not a single person. Although in Krishna Leela, of course, there was, uh, you know, very big numbers up there. So, but, the, but in the past, of like not a single person was ever killed or even really seriously injured. And in fact, it said that Chaitanya's Raga and Krishna together so that in this age, because it's so fallen. That not only Krishna but Radharani, the most compassionate form of the divine, also personally came within that same body, Radha and Krishna together. Because only with such compassion can the people of this age be given a chance. So, anyway, and what you're doing here is the Yuga Dharma, uh, something that that's always goes on this ashram, chanting all these mantras, different names of God, and different names of the great souls who serve God. Uh, that is considered to be, in these literatures, the Yuga Dharma, the the, uh, the most powerful means in this age uh, to awaken our eternal spiritual consciousness. So, uh, anyway, thank you all again very much for your hospitality and your attention, and uh, we'll see you all again soon.